to actions antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. One thing that I sincerely believe is that right now we're in a period of transformation. We're kind of embracing a new way of thinking. And some of those new ways of thinking involves what we believe as far as potential competitors and collaborators. In the old days, people would say oftentimes, well, if you want to do something new, you have to either be unique in your idea, say, you know, bring something completely new to the world, or you need to basically outcompete anyone else that's doing anything similar, the kind of traditional view of competition. Nowadays, though, we're looking at a lot of people that are doing similar things in this world and saying to ourselves, actually, we can collaborate because not everyone reaches the same audiences, the same people with the message, just like how musicians can have similar lyrics, but in different genres and bring the same message to different groups of people. There's not a person that appeals to everyone. And one thing I say about my particular podcast is that I'm trying to encourage people to broaden their horizons, open themselves to new ideas, and actually go for the things that they really care about. That's all of you in the audience. Whatever your idea is, I want to encourage you to really consider following your true passions. There are a lot of people out there doing it. Tony Robbins has been doing this for over 30 years, but Tony Robbins isn't reaching everyone the same way Pitbull isn't necessarily reaching everyone with his negative to positive podcast, but he's reaching a whole new audience. In order to embrace this kind of frame of mind, Today, I am actually bringing on my guests are podcasters, Alex Cullimore and Christina Amagoni, who have a podcast who they actually cover topics quite similar to mine. Their podcast is called Uncover the Human, and I would like to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so the first question I want to ask is, how did Uncover the Human, how did the idea really come together? What made you decide that you were going to do this and bring this message to your audience? Honestly, it started a lot over a bunch of happy hours. We started working at a company for a long time and we kept talking about like, well, how do we make this a little bit better experience for people? And we kept coming back to the people side of things. How does this really relate to how people interact with each other on a day-to-day basis? How can we bring that more into the workplace? And the more we talked about it, we came up with all of these concepts and just tons of research. I now have a bookshelf full of books that we put together in the first six months there. And we have continued adding to that list, but we really enjoyed just talking about, well, how do you bring more people to this? And the more we talked about it, the more we're like, well, we want to do kind of consulting or coaching in that space. And that started to grow. And then of course, COVID happened. And as that shut down, we'd always wanted to launch something like a podcast or write books around these topics. And the podcast became the go-to method to go get the message out and talk more about interacting as humans. Now, my podcast, I always begin every episode with actions, antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. What is for Uncover the Human, what would you say is your core message that you're trying to get to your audience? When we were thinking about the topic, the overall umbrella of the podcast, the theme of authenticity kept coming up and how when we are allowed to be our true selves and our full selves, and when we find the courage to do it, because it's not just about being allowed, it's figuring out who we actually are and who that is and bring it forth we shine. I mean, we can do way more than we can when we're trying to mold and try to figure out like, oh, who am I supposed to be in this situation? And, you know, how am I supposed to repress the rest of me? And one of the things that the pandemic I found brought forth was the fact that, oh, wait, everybody's a whole human. They're not just employees. 
There are employees with kids that will show up in the middle of their podcast or with cats that will walk across <laughs> in the middle of a meeting. And so that authenticity came a little bit more to the forefront of everybody's mind. So that was kind of the overall theme is like, how do we help people create more authentic lives for themselves and create space for more authenticity for others? What would you say as of right now, as we kind of generally are going back into, I don't want to say a new normal or use any of those kind of overused phrase, but as we're kind of going back and re-engaging in a lot of the activities and some people are going back to the office at certain part-time or even some full-time levels, what is the number one or the top barrier that prevents people from being their authentic selves every day in their lives? There's two things that strike me that we continually come across the more we try and explore the topic of authenticity and how to both encourage it for ourselves and others. And I'd say the two key things, especially between interactions between people, come down to listening and empathy. The more you listen to people, the more there's like an actual ability to share who we are and connect to that. And that's one thing that you hear that a lot when we're talking about how do you reapproach going back to an office or if you're going back to an office, one huge portion of it that everybody tries to highlight is talk to people, listen to them, see what they have to say and empathize with where they might be at. And I think we all got a little bit better, maybe not better, but we all, it was easier to empathize with people over the course of the pandemic because there was this large scale shared experience we were all going through. And so I think both of these helped kind of push it to the forefront of the mind. But if I was going to boil down to as few things as possible, those have been some really key elements to getting shared authenticity. So if someone is deficient in listening and deficient in empathy, what do you think causes that? And how do you think that manifests in an inauthentic life? That's a great question. What causes that? I don't know. And it's probably different for every person. My guess is a lot of times they're lacking the courage to be their authentic self to begin with. They are emulating what they've seen happen in the past, whether it's worked or not. So if they have worked with very command control systemized type of managers, and they have seen those managers grow to directors and VPs and CFOs, then they think that that's the trajectory. The trajectory is, well, they have career, they're clearly successful in their career, even though from a human being, we don't know whether they're successful or not. So that's the way to go it's a struggle. You're not in flow. When you're not in your authentic self, you're not in flow. So you're constantly struggling with your own values. You may not have identified your values, but there's disturbance and you know it's, there's resistance when you're doing things and phrases like, deep in my heart, I know that's true, but I don't know how to apply it. So I'm going to act this way. That's one of the ways that I've seen it come up. And a lot of things that people have been talking about recently is kind of focusing on what you can control. Because oftentimes we spend tons of time focusing on things that are completely out of our control. And what we really can control is not what happens to us, but our reaction to it. And so if someone's in an environment where they have a lot of command and control type of thinking, a lot of what I oftentimes refer to as a fear-based organization, everyone's always just trying to prove themselves and prove how loyal they are by not setting boundaries at their work. What can someone do to basically say, okay, I can't make my organization that I'm working with right now what it is. I can't make the people around me be any different than who they are. All I can do is focus on my reaction to it. What can someone do to kind of use that knowledge and still create a more authentic life in the place they are now? That's a really interesting question. I think you've hit on two really interesting 
for pieces of it. First of all, I think fear-based is a good good way of describing it because that is where a lot of command and control, I think, comes from. There's fear of losing the control. There's fear of not having that. And so that also translates to fear in the people being commanded and controlled. What's going to happen next? And somebody else has control over my destiny. And I think the second portion you put there is that kind of would be the first solution I would lean towards would be boundaries. You're looking for ways to, for yourself, create limits. There's obviously plenty of people and plenty of workspaces that will happily violate those boundaries or they'll have to be reinforced many times. And it may be to the point where you realize, well, I'm not going to be able to set this boundary and this is really important to me. So I'm going to have to look for another place. But I would say that first step is figuring out this is really a hard line for me. If that's going to be a problem, then we need to talk about that in a dialogue, not in, well, I have a problem with this, but you say I can't have a problem with that. (laughs) (laughs) That's effective. Yeah. (laughs) Little gaslighting. (laughs) (laughs) And it is true. It feels sometimes like there's incentives in this world to violate boundaries in the sense that because of the way our benefit structures are, having one person work 60 hours a week is oftentimes more advantageous in some situations than having two people work 30 hours a week apiece. So when someone's encountering that fear, let's say it's a Thursday, as it is today, as we're recording it, and someone knows that their boss is going to try to either get them to do work, plug in over the weekend, or is asking them to do tasks. And they're saying, no, I've made plans with my family tonight, or I made plans with my friends tonight, or I just need some time to relax, whatever it is. I think we're kind of all starting to understand that these needs are all valid and it doesn't have to fit into a set defined like, oh, you have doctor's appointment, therefore you can go. No, like whatever it is you need for your mental health, which is in the shitter in this country right now in a (laughs) lot of situations. So as someone's encountering that and their, their heartbeat starts racing up and down, they know they're disappointing a coworker or a boss by saying, no, I'm not going to get this done by the end of the week because I just don't have the capacity and this other thing needs to happen. What should someone be doing or thinking as their heartbeat kind of goes up in pace and they're like getting nervous about setting that boundary? I love the fact that you brought up the heartbeat, because one of the things that we've noticed as a coach I've learned is that the physical reaction is way faster than the mental and emotional reaction. So your body reacts to something that's misaligned with a value or something that's important to us way before our brain realizes what happened. And so it's true. It's the heartbeat. It's the throat closing. It's the fists sweating or closing, whatever it is that the shoulders and the neck hurting that happens before. And so I would say, and it sounds cliche, but the first thing to do is breathe. As we get into that heartbeat situation, it means our adrenaline is up, which means we're in a threat conflict. And so when in a threat conflict, our tunnel vision goes to nothing, goes to survival. And so one way to stop that is to realize it. So name the feeling and be like, oh, my heartbeat is racing or my neck hurts or my throat is closing. What just happened? And so take those few seconds, but take the few seconds to real to name it and break the reaction cycle and then understand why. Why did that happen? Oh, I was just asked to work on something that I know it's going to take me 20 hours and it's Thursday. And which means that if they want to do Monday morning, I have to work over the weekend. And I had plans. I wanted to relax. I have kids. I just wanted to Netflix binge, whatever it is. I did not want to work the weekend. So that's the reaction. The next step would say to, I'll take this from our friend Gail, is to yes and. And yes and doesn't mean yes, I'm going to do it. It means let's continue the conversation. So I'm not going to shut you down or I'm not going to feel like I have to shut you down to protect myself and understand how we can come to a mutual understanding. And it could be anything from 
I understand that this is important. Can we talk about the deadline? Because we only have two or a day and a half of working time before Monday morning, and I wanna make sure that we can actually do this in that time frame. So it doesn't really have to be about what's happening over the weekend. It just has to be, this is the work week. Let's establish that just in case somebody forgot about it. And that actually seems to circle back to the idea presented at the beginning of the discussion about kind of listening and empathy. And so if in this situation, if the employee can say, okay, I'm going to take a deep breath, but I understand I'm going to listen to why they may be asking me of this. Maybe the leadership is worried about losing this client, or maybe something else is coming on, but then the leadership also, if they can take a deep breath listen and have empathy, as you said, and say, okay, but I understand that this employee is not my resource, but a human being. And that can kind of lead to possibly the two sides working together to kind of find a solution as opposed to being adversarial toward one another and trying to just like punch back and forth. Do you see this response as happening more and more frequently in different work environments? Or do you see work kind of going back to the way it was before the pandemic and even before that, where people are just trying to, you know, crank out whatever. It's an interesting question because I think there's two different sides going on right now. We have people like WeWork CEO came out and was uh, trying to say anybody who doesn't want to go to an office, you know, is is not as dedicated. And that's what the Chase uh, CEO is also saying. And they got, of course, highly publicized and highly mocked for it because that was something that was for one, this, the WeWork is very easy to see like, well, that's very clearly serving his business model, particularly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chase one, I think everybody was like, well, that's, that's all well and good for a finance company that recently was petitioned or I don't know if it was their company, but there was a finance company where the workers were petitioning to keep their weeks under a hundred hours. Oh, that was Goldman Sachs, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> So I think there is, there's highly publicized debate, but on the personal level of the smaller companies that don't have every headline, I've seen a little more dialogue and a lot more understanding, especially if there's the availability of things like remote work, there's a lot more calm discussions. I think it also sometimes depends on where the trajectory of the company feels because as the economy comes back online, people are feeling a lot more confident. It's a lot easier to feel like customers are going to be coming in. And then in that situation, it's a lot harder to feel the stress that would lead to the trying to shut other people down on both sides of it from the like company point of view or the employee point of view. I also kind of want to get your input on this idea of the culture of urgency. I've written a LinkedIn article about this and had many discussions about the one aspect that I'm seeing as key to kind of letting people live their more authentic lives. In some situations, that means people working different hours that suits them better or setting themselves up where they can focus better at work, which is a big thing, right? If you're constantly having Slack, email, everything distract you because people need to talk to you right away, how do you get in that flow state? And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on my kind of in the works hypothesis that one of the keys to letting people have their freer, more authentic lives and happier, more fulfilled lives, filling all their other needs, whether it be interpersonal connection with other human beings or exercise or whatever fulfillment doing their side projects is to kind of rein in this culture of urgency and say, okay, I need to talk to you about something. And rather than just pinging you or whatever and saying, I expect you to respond right away, I'm going to set up a meeting with you tomorrow and prepare for it. And then you can expect that for your tomorrow and you can plan your day accordingly. 
is that a key part or is this just more of a minor side thing that I've thought of? I think it's pretty huge and it, it brings up a couple of things in my mind. One of the things is that every once in a while I have nightmares more than dreams of having to have a job <laughs> interview <laughs> to go back into the corporate world and work there and apply for a job. And I kind of envision the how would I answer the question that typically comes up, which is what's one of your weaknesses or what is one of your areas of improvement? And that sense of urgency is definitely one of my areas of improvement because I get very excited about ideas and Alex knows this very well and he's very patient about that and new things and shiny things. And when I get that excited, I want it to happen now. Like I want it to just, it doesn't matter what else we're doing. It doesn't matter, you know, if it's the weekend, the holiday, Christmas Eve, it's now, it's in my head. I have a whole story, I have a whole movie created and it's gonna happen. And so I've had to work on slowing down writing it down, finding a way to not lose the idea, and then think about it. Does it have to happen now? Or is this just something that could possibly happen in the future if we get there, or could possibly happen in a real future that we can plan for? And so that sense of urgency is definitely something I need to work on, for sure. From the outside, the other thing that comes to mind is that sense of, you know, that need for instant gratification that we all have about everything. And it's something that does need to change because there's this myth that we can multitask, but we really can't. <laughs> the brain does not multitask. If we think about something, we have to do that thing. We cannot think about breathing if we're actually thinking about breathing and doing something else. And so the problem of pinging people and wanting their sense right now, it is a problem because you're expecting people to multitask and it takes about 20 minutes for somebody to go back into what they were doing. So if you're constantly interrupting them, they're not getting anything done. And for those serial multitaskers out there, the people who can't sit on a Zoom meeting without opening up a web browser or looking at their email or handling another task, what can you do tomorrow, tomorrow morning, or even today to get on the path to get out of this habit and become more present in the one activity that you're actually doing. One thing I found especially useful is the idea of batching and it, like batching your tasks into areas. And you mentioned this a bit when you're talking about scheduling a meeting for tomorrow, you're talking about like, let's change when we're going to do this and let's change when Slack is available. Like Slack is an instant messenger, which sounds great until you have to context switch every 15 minutes because somebody needs something else. The idea of like setting aside specific times to get these things done, actually one of that is especially popular right now in creative circles is called the Pomodoro technique, which you set aside either 20 or 25 minutes at a time to just set through a task. And then you give yourself, I think it's either five or 10 minutes at the end of that, which is just a break, like just reset, recharge, and then do another one or do another little sprint. And so it's easier sometimes to batch those things I find into like, then I know I'm going to get to these emails. They're not just like hanging in the back of your head. Like, I know I have like five things I need to answer, but I'm working on something else right now. But if you don't open your email until those 25 minutes, then you can just get through those, finish those out, close it down for another, you know, two hours or whatever of other tasks and come back. That makes sense. And what would you say to the people who naturally have some sort of urgency set aside in their head as soon as they see that notification, whether it be on your phone or on your computer, that you got a Slack message that either said at your name or at channel at home, those ones that kind of notify everyone. And the same thing can be going for email or phone calls or texts or anything like that. 
first of all, preemptively make a decision about whether you can handle that distraction. If it's, you know, a task that I wouldn't say allows you for multitasking, but allows for a quick ease of switching context, then leave it on and then say like, hey, I'll get to you in 10 minutes. I'm finishing something if that allows it. And there are tasks where that's not allowed, where if I need to be in focus, I need to be in focus. I cannot have any distractions. And so some of the things that we've seen worked very well with our teams is to actually announce that on Slack and say like, hey, I'm going heads down for the next two hours. I'm going to turn notifications off. If there is an emergency, which thankfully none of us are saving lives, so there really isn't ever (laughs) an emergency, you know, text me. But at least there's a limitation on how I can be reached. Once one person does it, honestly, and hopefully the leader is the one that talks about that in the team building and in the team environment so that they know that that's how it is, everybody will emulate it and respect that. And on our side of like, oh my God, I have this urgent thing and I need to tell Alex and he's offline for the next three hours, then I get to do my own self-work of like, is it urgent? Are people dying with this? (laughs) We had a friend who always said at work, you know, like, will any kittens die if I don't actually talk to him right now about this and I wait the three hours? If the answer is no, then again, take a note, jot it down, even write like, hey, when you get back, can we talk about this? As you said, like some of the best work, anyone that's talked about flow, some of the best work happens when you're heads down, you're in the moment. And for me, it usually happens in what I refer to as 90 minute power sessions. And I think that's pretty common that that's how long you maintain that really deep focus, but it only really works if you're not even noticing anything else or nothing else is coming in and distracting you, which is easier said than done for a lot of people. How important is it for people on the leadership side of this equation to set an example and even temper their own, I'm the leader and you answer to me type of mentality and say, okay, I'm going to live according to this. I'm going to go heads down for two hours and not be distracted, or I'm not going to respond to your Slack message for an hour and a half. And that's just okay in this organization. I'd say it's especially important on leadership. And that's not only for the leaders that would have that feeling of like wanting to get that answer immediately, just because they happen to be leading or have the the traditional power. It's also, even if the leader is just incredibly enthusiastic about something, if they're not diligent about setting that example of like respecting both other people's time when they take it and taking time for themselves, then it becomes, even if it's said that it's okay to do these things, if it's not an example, people are not going to believe that's truly okay. We referred to that. We were talking about like people have like glass, the uh, the open door policy. They're like, oh yeah, anybody can come in. And there's so many places where nobody's coming in. And we started calling it the glass door policy because it really just has transparency, (laughs) but you can't, nobody's going through. Yeah. And there's a lot of measures out there that you see kind of these sometimes performative or statement only, you know, what they actually do doesn't really match what they're saying. How common do you think that is like present day in our world? Too common. (laughs) I don't know if I want to laugh or cry or scream, all three. (laughs) But it's too common. It's interesting to me because it's the definition of lack of integrity when what you say and what you do do not match. And we're all human. So it happens. Accidents happen. And one of the ways to counteract when it happens is to apologize, acknowledge it and apologize. And, you know, I've read this quote many times, when it happens once, it's an accident. When it happens twice, it's intentional. So 
if you're going to put integrity on your website or on your wall, please know what that means. And please, for the love of all good things, actually practice it. <laughs> because nobody can trust you if you don't actually do that. And so if you don't want to, because you are afraid of authenticity, because you're afraid of the vulnerability, because you're afraid of losing your job, because you're afraid of losing the client, actually practice that and lead by that all the time, then don't put it as one of your values. <laughs> so for most of this podcast, I've been focusing a bit on work and how work causes us to be a little bit less than our authentic selves due to fear of not getting that project, not getting the promotion, getting fired. Are there any other areas of life that we need to highlight and really talk about as other places where people experience a lot of challenges in being authentic? I would say every area of life becomes especially like a challenge here and there. And if you think about things like family relationships, it can be challenging if there's boundaries are harder to establish sometimes when you have people you're very close to or have known for a very long time, or they know everything about you, you know everything about them. It can feel harder to have that level of like, well, this is who I am, or especially if you start to go through either some kind of change or something that starts to be important to you that they don't know about you. I think it's pretty natural for people to expect other people to behave in a certain way. And so when you start to change, it can create tension, even if it's not conflict, it can still create some amount of tension in relationships. And so I think there's lots of areas of life in which it's difficult to establish those. And one of the ways we've seen that just you can kind of underpin how to keep yourself top of mind is by establishing and living with your own personal values. If you know those, it's easier to decide when you're going to set boundaries, how you're going to set boundaries. And those values apply across all the different domains of our lives. There's the family domain, there's you know personal, the, the hours when we're alone and working on something that only we want to work on domain, there's our work domain. All of those areas are influenced by that base level foundation of our personal values. And what can someone do to make sure, first of all, they know what their personal values are? Because a lot of times I see people who have personal values and I wonder are these your personal values or are these your organization's values? Or is this your core social group, whatever tier of society, political organization? How do someone go about, first of all, making sure that they understand that these are my own personal values, not the values I think I should be having because of some external thing that I mentioned? Well, the shortcut to that, if there is one, is hire a coach. <laughs> <laughs> the self-work still needs to be done. So a coach can help you, but it's only a guide. I would say the first thing to do is recognize those moments where that heartbeat beats faster. So start kind of journaling or jotting down, at least making a list of like, when do I feel disturbed? So the disturbance is the heartbeat, the neck ache, the stomach aches, the nausea, the can't sleep. So those physical symptoms of something is off in this situation, and then kind of go through, you know, the questions, what happened? So kind of tell the objectively tell the story of what happened. I was asked to work over the weekend on something that's going to take me working over the weekend, for example, as we used before. What did I feel about it? Well, I felt that I had to sacrifice my time alone or my time with my family. Okay, so start recognizing those pieces. Like, okay, what does that mean? Well, it means that I value time with my family. I value time off. I value well-being. I value nature, whatever it is. So that can already give you a clue of, oh, self-care or family time, it's a value of mine. The opposite way, which is also just as valuable and should be done, is recognize the times when you're crazy excited about something, when you're in flow, 
when you're working 17 hours straight and you even forgot to eat, but you never even thought about it. And you're only stopping because everybody else is actually leaving and going to dinner, not because you want to stop. So then start examining those and be like, what was it? What was I doing that was energizing me so much that I didn't want to stop? Oh, I was talking to people all day. So connections to humans is a value. I was brainstorming, problem solving. I love problem solving and strategy. Great. I was listening. I was empathizing. Whatever it was that I was actually doing, that's connected to a value. That's important to me. I need to get more of that in my life. And you can feel Christina's passion for that one. <laughs> yeah, it's great. You can always feel it in the tone of voice, right? And you can always tell when someone's being all monotone, like, and we will give you a 5.4% rate of return <laughs> or something like that. I mean, now that actually, I would be pretty thrilled at getting a 5.4% right now to be 100% honest. So I'm not even mocking that. And someone's thrilled about getting 5.4% for themselves or their clients. I'm actually really happy for you. And I really didn't mean to throw any shade in that direction. But I'm observing around me and hopefully through the people listening to both your podcast and my podcast, a lot of more people kind of paying attention to a lot of these issues. How do you really be truly human, truly authentic? Do you see this as a movement that's widespread or do you feel like, for lack of a better way to put it, I'm just in my own bubble here in Denver? It's funny. We actually joke between Christina and I because she'll send me at least one article from McKinsey a week where they are establishing, and thankfully they've done the research, they're establishing something that we have either posited or would love to see happen. So there's things like rise of the chief person officer. There's, you know, putting a people human first culture. Those are things that are now coming out in much like Harvard Business Review, McKinsey. We even saw it, you know, within the last year, I think it was actually slightly before the pandemic when maybe it was during either way, there was like, they gotten some of the CEOs together and established that maybe the most important thing is not stakeholder value anymore that you have to count employees in. So I think there was the beginnings of like the feeling of a wave. And when the entire globe shuts down because people are getting sick and, and worried about their loved ones, it tends to push, I think, the narrative even faster. Some of my more cynical people said, oh, people are just going to be so quick to go back to the world before the pandemic. And one of the things I really couldn't picture us going back on is, is this idea of health. I couldn't picture us going back to the idea of people feeling pressure to show up to work when they're sick, even when they declare that the last no one's in the hospital anywhere in the world from COVID and this whole thing's over and there's not a new pandemic. There's still going to be the idea when you're sick, stay home. It feels <laughs> like I just I can't imagine people going back to being like. <coughs> But, but if I just get on the 730 train, I can show that I'm dedicated. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely agree with that. <laughs> and so given that some of these shifts are shown to be legitimate by these companies like McKinsey that pull across, you know, large spectrums of culture and not just me and other people that attend TED Talks in Denver, what do you see the world of, say, 2028, so many years down the road, looking like? And how do you see that looking different from what we had today or we had prior to the pandemic? 2028. Well, my dream world is there's a whole new leadership <laughs> in all sorts of ways and approach to leadership. So all approaches to leadership are really humans first. So they're about empathy and listening and caring, not about command and control. The old leadership is, you know, gone at that point, either because of 
age, retirement, or also because of the workforce just hasn't tolerated it. It was, you know, it's just like it's done. Like, the, you know, as a company, as a leader, as a team, as a project, we're just not going to do business with you. You're not going to have the revenue. The bottom line is going to be hugely hit. So it's not acceptable anymore to not treat people like humans. So that's my dream. Now, if it happened by 2028, I don't know. <laughs> I actually do also tend to get a little bit impatient about some things, too, because I was like, people should have realized 50 years ago that this new service sector work is not the same as assembly line. And the correlation between your hours and your value is much diminished from the assembly line. Like, why didn't the baby boomers realize this when they were 25? And now we're trying to like figure this out now. So, you know, I tend to be a little bit impatient and crazy. So for the benefit of my audience, I just want to have you tell us like how people would get a hold of you, your services, as well as your podcast. Yes. As Stephen said, our podcast is called Uncover the Human. Episodes about authenticity. We've talked a lot about different ways of doing a lot of the things we've discussed here, right? getting yourself out of fear, getting yourself into a little bit more authentic mindset. So you can find that on any of the regular podcast directories, Spotify, Apple, et cetera. Any of the apps should be available. And please feel free to, if you find one that we're not on, we'd be happy to try and fill that. But we are at uncoverthehuman.wearesiamo.com. Siamo is spelled S-I-A-M-O. Siamo is actually the company we have, is the holder of the podcast, for lack of a better term. It is a, that's where we do a lot of our coaching and consulting work through. And so that is, uh, our website is just wearesiamo.com and you can find our newsletter there and you can find us on LinkedIn, either Alex Cullimore or Christina Amigoni. Uh, you can just find us and DM us or message us. We're always around and happy to talk. And we're also on Instagram, Facebook, anything at wearesiamo. Nice. And then do you have one other message for everyone that's been listening to this conversation about noticing our heartbeats, our patterns, when we're acting out of fear, when we're being inauthentic? What would be one last final message you have for everyone listening that really wants to be more authentic and really wants to find a way to live in alignment? That's a good question. I would say the message that comes to mind is kind of what we stand for as a company. So uh, Siamo is Italian because that's where I grew up for we are. And what we found is the fact that when we work together, when we find that safe space, that safe people that allow us to show up authentically as, as ourselves, then we get the courage and vulnerability to do that. And so if we can really, and a lot of the things that you said at the beginning, actually about collaboration, versus competition just because we are similar podcasts really stems from my true core belief that we are better together, that there is no reason to compete because we can actually lift each other if we work together. And so that really expands in all sorts of lives and works. It's not just this industry or just this podcast is, is everywhere. It's like, look at the vaccines. I mean, it's, you know, we got, you know, three, four, five, I can't even, I'm losing counts of how many vaccines there are out there for COVID. And it was because everybody worked together instead of competing against each other. So we have miracles. I mean, I say it all the time. There is no way we would have gone to the moon if it weren't for a team of people that actually put their egos aside and stopped competing and started working together in diversity with belonging, with accepting other people's perspectives and not just accepting them, but looking for them, requiring them in the room. If you look in a room and everybody looks like you, talks like you, has the same background as you, has the same education as you, you're missing something huge. You're missing 90% of what could be in that room. Yeah. And 
that makes perfect sense because I think there's a lot of people who surround themselves with themselves. It's a tendency. It makes people comfortable. And I think as we go out back in the world, we will recognize someone who has really missed the point when you're outside a bar and you see someone yell Moderna and the other person yell Pfizer <laughs> and then they start punching each other in the face. <laughs> Those are deaf people that just... <laughs> Hey, at least they're vaccinated. <laughs> it can be a maskless fight, but <laughs> exactly. <laughs> definitely. So those bloody noses will definitely show up because they're not behind a mask. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new mask. It's the name of the vaccine that we have. <laughs> oh, definitely. Well, Alex and Christina, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that we continue to have a collaborative relationship as opposed to a competitive one. I'm not fighting you for listeners. You're not fighting me for listeners. I want to thank everyone out there for listening and stay tuned to Actions Antidotes, where I interview more people who decided to do something they really care about as opposed to what other people expected them to do. Thank you so so much, much, Stephen. Thank you. 